people in bands are business partners, actually. And the other thing, when people tell me, well, I feel weird bringing it up, it's for everyone's protection. It shouldn't be an adversarial thing, like I'm coming in with this contract that we have to sign. It's to benefit everyone so that everyone's clear on how the relationship works and what happens if you don't want to be in that relationship. But it is a business. It's a company, even if it's not legally designated that way. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm going to share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're going to show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. All right, so I'm super excited to be here today with Erin Jacobson. She's known as the music industry lawyer, and she protects musicians, songwriters, and music publishers. She's worked with Grammy and Emmy award winners. And today, I thought it would be really valuable to, to dive into how to negotiate deals and make sure that you're protecting yourself and your rights and how to avoid the biggest mistakes that she sees come up as patterns in terms of not understanding how a deal works and make sure that it's a win-win for everyone rather than potentially being taken advantage of or making a mistake. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, to start out with, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and how, how you get started helping musicians with, with their negotiate their deals. Sure. So I've always been what I call a professional appreciator of music because I'm not a musician, but I've always loved music and been really interested in it. And then when I was in college, I took a course on the music industry, which prior to that, I didn't know anything about working in the music business except for being a performing musician, which again, I'm not. In this class, I learned about managers and agents and copyrights and contracts and record deals and et cetera. And I thought that the copyrights and the contracts were just really interesting. I really understood them and started hearing all these stories about these musicians getting screwed, signing these contracts that were really unfair to them. And I thought, wow, I could be a lawyer representing musicians and helping them to not get screwed with these contracts. I could protect them from this. And so that, that was it. I never looked back. I just got really involved in the music industry after that. I was a DJ at my campus radio station in college and took a bunch of different classes and did different internships and then went to law school for the purpose of becoming a music lawyer. And again, took all the relevant classes and I went to a law school that offered that because not all law schools offer entertainment or music courses. And yeah, did in more internships and networked and all that kind of stuff, formed relationships, passed the bar and opened my own practice. And here we are like 11 years later. <laughs> so, Amazing. Um, I want to say on behalf of musicians uh, everywhere, thank you for looking out for us <laughs> and helping avoid, avoid the sharks. Awesome. So you know, having a ton of experience working with musicians and seeing a lot of different types of deals and seeing mistakes and, and whatnot, what are some of the biggest, what are some of the biggest mistakes or what are some of the biggest things to avoid or look out for, for musicians who are listening to this right now? 
Yeah, so I think the answer to that question depends on what stage you're at, but I would, the best place to start is by understanding what's going on as much as you can. Now you don't, your job is to be a musician. You don't have to take over doing every other job and like go to law school and do this and do that, but you should understand enough to know what's going on because at the end of the day, it's your career. And I'll just throw this in before I finish answering the question, just anything I say on the podcast, I have to give a disclaimer because I'm a lawyer. So anything I say on the podcast is not legal advice, doesn't create an attorney client relationship with me. Just all the information is general information, informational purposes, educational purposes, et cetera. Nothing I say is an advertisement directed at anyone specific. And you are great. a lawyer, aren't you? I have to say all that stuff. <laughs> 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 so it's like the thing, every speaking event, we're saying that now. But so yeah, the first thing to do is really just understand what's going on because at the end of the day, it's your career. But then the other, because that ties into other mistakes I see, like people not understanding the importance of having a registered copyright for their works or people not registering for the royalty collection services that they need to register for because musicians typically want to get paid for the, the music that they make and when that's used and performed and different things like that. And without those proper registrations, you're not going to get paid. And then the next sort of mistake I see, especially at the indie level, but also at the superstar level as well, is not doing agreements when you should. So like not doing a split agreement when you're co-writing with somebody in the studio or not having a producer agreement up front and thinking you'll just do it later. And when these things happen later, it's much easier for there to be problems for example, with songwriter split agreement, people can then all of a sudden disagree on the splits or maybe want more than they would have asked for at the session or producer agreement. So the producer thought it was the terms were going to be one thing and the artist thought it was going to be something else. And then all of a sudden you've got a disagreement, but the record is done and needs to be released, but now you've got this holdup because you don't have the agreement done. So those are the things that really kind of set up for the other mistakes. And then once you get into contract world, then it's about having the right person on your team to make sure that you're not signing something that is detrimental to you. Because that's kind of the third level of mistake is that people sign things without reviewing them or without understanding what they mean or not having an attorney review it on their behalf to catch the things that they don't know to look for. So those are kind of the tears of mistakes. Awesome. That's, that's super helpful. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the biggest mistake in general is just not understanding the lay of the land. And because that makes it possible to even be taken advantage of is because you don't really understand how, how things are working. And some of the main ones, and maybe we can we can dig dig into them, sure. each of them a little bit more, but like, sounds like one of the the first ones that you mentioned was just in terms of understanding their royalties and their copyright and sometimes overlooking that and not realizing that they actually need to register these songs in order to get paid for them. So could you tell me a little bit more about, about that for anyone who's listening to this right now? What exactly do they need to do in order to make sure that their, their songs are, are registered and taken care of? In the U.S., at least, where I'm based, 
so when something is created that's original enough to have copyright protection, once you, what the copyright law calls, fix it in a tangible medium of expression, which means you put it in a physical medium, like you write it down, you record it, something that's physical that can be reproduced. Technically, it has copyright protection under the law. However, there's a whole bunch of benefits that come with registering with the U.S. Copyright Office. And the most important two of them being one, if there's an infringement or some issue with the ownership, you cannot sue in federal court unless you have a copyright registration. And two, the court will look to the copyright registration and the date of creation on that registration as like the official information. So mailing it to yourself, posting it online on YouTube or SoundCloud or whatever, putting, registering it with a site that is not the copyright office that just offers you a date stamp or something. Those are not reliable methods. And there's so much misinformation on the internet. People are like, oh, I can register on this site for $4. And that's like way cheaper than the copyright office. <laughs> and, but it, but what those people don't understand is that it's not giving you the protection that you need. And copyright registration is very important. And while the application fees are slightly more expensive than $4, they're really well worth it. And when you own a copyright, you have a list of rights that come along with that. So whoever is the owner of the copyright is in control of how that work is reproduced, distributed, performed, whether people can make changes, how other people can use it, and the right to collect the income from those uses. And that's where the royalties come in because every type of music royalty, and probably your listeners would have heard some of these terms like performance, mechanical, things like that, those are all tied to rights of copyright. And so I go into this more in depth in my book, Don't Get Screwed, How to Protect Yourself as an Independent Musician, where I really break down the rights of copyright, the different royalty streams, how you get paid those royalties, and how those royalties relate to the different copy, the different rights of copyright. So yeah, going into the royalty part of it, there's, like I said, these different royalty streams like performance, mechanical, print, streaming mechanicals, their sync fees if you're music is used in a film or a television show. And these all come with different royalty streams, different payment structures, and they involve registering with organizations to collect those. So for example, performance royalties, you want to register with a performance rights organization. So in the US, the two most well-known are ASCAP and BMI because those are available for anyone to register with. There's, we have a couple others, but those are the main ones, at least for independent musicians. And those are the organizations that when your music is publicly performed, which doesn't just mean in a concert, it means played, if you will, in public for people that are not just your immediate family and friends. So maybe that's on the radio, maybe it's on television, maybe that's in a restaurant over the speakers, different things like that. Streaming is also a performance. ASCAP and BMI collect those royalties for performance and then pay you those royalties as a songwriter. 
as a publisher. So there's ways in which to properly register with these organizations to make sure that you're getting paid what you should be getting paid and that these organizations know, okay, Michael wrote this song and now this song has just been streamed on Spotify and therefore Michael is owed a royal, things like that. It can get very overwhelming, I think, because there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of blogs and websites and different things about it, but it does, they often don't put everything together kind of in one package. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book because it, instead of having all this piecemeal information, it's like, here's one thing to put it together. This is what you need to know rather than going like, okay, this site's talking about mechanicals and how does that relate to performance? And does ASCAP and BMI collect the mechanicals for you? And no, they don't, that's Harry Fox. So yeah, I think there's just a lot that floats around that then people come to me and go, my friend told me such. And I'm like, your friend is wrong. And like, this is what you need to do. So yeah, those are just some of the kind of really basic things that really trip people up a lot, actually. But it's really important because again, like you don't get paid if you don't do these things or you don't have somebody that's correctly doing them on your behalf, because even if you have a manager or somebody doing something for you, that doesn't mean that it's correct either, because I've had artists and writers come to me and say, I have this new song out and I know it's been getting airplay and I'm really not getting paid what I think I'm supposed to be getting paid. And I'll look at their performance registration and I'll go, well, yeah, that's because it's not registered right. So there's that aspect too. It gets pretty detailed with the data. Nowadays, the data that's associated with your music, the metadata we call it, is almost as important or sometimes as important as the ownership. Because again, if that's not right, you're not getting paid. Oh, what's up guys? So quick intermission from the podcast so I can tell you about an awesome free gift that I have for you. I wanted to share something that's not normally available to the public. They normally reserve for our $5,000 clients that we work with personally. This is a presentation called Six Steps to Explode Your Fan Base and Make a Profit with Your Music Online. And specifically, we're gonna walk through how to build a paid traffic and automated funnel that's gonna allow you to grow your fan base online and the system's designed to get you to your first $5,000 a month with your music. We've invested over $130,000 in the past year to test out different traffic sources and different offers and really see what's working best right now for musicians. And so I think it's gonna be hugely valuable for you. And so if that's something you're interested in, in the description, there should be a little link that you can click on to go get that. And uh, the other thing I wanna mention is, you know, if you wanna do us a, a huge favor, one thing that really makes a big difference early on when you're creating a new podcast is if people click subscribe, then it basically lets the algorithm know that this is something that's new and noteworthy and that uh, people actually wanna hear. And so that'll help us reach a lot more people. So if you're getting value from this and you get value from the free trainings, then if you want to do us a favor, I'd really appreciate you clicking the subscribe button. All right, let's get back to the podcast. That's really good stuff. And I think you're right that a lot of this is the kind of stuff that could feel a little bit overwhelming at first, but is also like really important. The, uh, the first thing that you mentioned about copyright is actually really interesting to me because I feel like I personally was misinformed because I have always thought that like, oh yeah, copyrights because like as soon as something is copyright, like if, as long as you can prove that like that you created it, 
that you're kind of protected by copyright law. But it sounds like it's a lot more important than I realized to like actually get copyrights registered. So that's one thing I, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on is just like fully understanding that. So because you, you said that like there is something that happens like when it's actually created, but that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. So could you share right. a little bit more about like, what does that actually do? Like, what does it mean that you're supposed to have copyright when you first create it? And, and why does that not work? So it's more of kind of a basic protection, not to go into a law school class, but you have federal law, which is like U.S., and then you have state laws, and we have something called common law, which is sort of more state-based, lesser level of protection. And so what the copyright law says is like, yes, you have this kind of basic level of protection when you put it in this physical form, but if something happens like an infringement or something, you can't sue in federal court unless you have already registered it with the U.S. Copyright Office. And when there is the suit in federal court, the Copyright Office is going to look to the information on the registration as that definitive information that they should rely on. There's other benefits as well, like when you register, like it goes in the online database. So like somebody can look up the work and see that you own it. There's something called statutory damages, which means in lawsuits, there's a certain amount of money that you're eligible to get by virtue of being able to sue in this federal court situation, which is not as much that you would get necessarily if you were not able to sue in federal court. So there's all these different benefits. There's like a presumption of ownership that you are the real owner when you have a registration. So it's kind of like a basic level and then like the official higher level. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So, so it sounds like, yeah, so like without having it properly registered, there's some basic uh, protection, but it doesn't necessarily give you a lot of the benefits that you would get from actually having it officially registered. Yeah. And if you don't have those benefits, like again, um, like suing in federal court, if somebody infringes on your work, you're going to have a hard time really pursuing it, especially because also copyright law is federal law. So you want that ability to be able to sue in federal court to defend the ownership of your work if you need to. And the Copyright Office does have like rush registration in advance of litigation, but it's way more expensive than if you would have just done it originally yeah um, gotcha yeah so what you're saying is that it, it might be possible to like to get it properly registered let's say that someone here records a smash banger of a hit and it's just incredible but they didn't get it registered as a copyright and it, it goes on to become a really successful song and then Komoshi. <laughs> Joe Komoshi comes it comes around and he says, "Hey, no you know what? I'm gonna say with anyone named Joe Komoshi. <laughs> Joe Komoshi. I'm gonna get angry emails from Joe Komoshi. He's like, oh my God, <laughs> he's the jig is up. Yeah. Um, so, so Joe Komoshi comes around and decides to take the song and just and kind of rip it off and <laughs> and so at that point." Would the person who wrote the original song, they, would they be able to register the song after the fact and say, and say, hey, like I've proven documentation that I wrote this song beforehand and then that they came in afterwards and they wrote it and then they get it properly registered so they could sue in federal court or are they just kind of out of luck now that yeah, they didn't? Yeah, no, you, 
the first part, yeah, you can then submit a registration and then you have to submit it with like rush handling because of pending litigation. You have to pay a lot more money to like move it to the front of the line and get it registered. It's at the time that we're talking about this right now to just, if you wrote a song today and you registered it, it's 45 to $65 for the application. It's not that really expensive. But if we're in the litigation rushing it scenario, there's like an extra $800 fee. So plus you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on litigation <laughs> anyway. So yeah, the whole thing becomes a lot more expensive and it's just, it's just much better to do it upfront. The other thing that, that you brought up was in terms of like royalty collection. And and I super appreciate the fact that you've taken all of these concepts and all these ideas and, and turned them into like a cohesive, simple, like streamlined option for people. So I'd highly recommend anyone who's who's interested in this stuff to go check out the book. But one, one thing that came to mind as you were talking about that was a conversation that I had recently on the podcast with Anna Bond, who works at SongTrust. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they have like a pretty awesome platform that that deals a lot with the conversation we're having today around like royalties. So I was curious just on um, your thoughts about song trust and how that kind of plugs into um, royalty collection and what is it like, are there any gaps that you still want to be aware of if you do work with song trust and, and what, what are your general thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so song trust is what we call basically an administration company. So because there are all these different royalty streams and all these different places to register, Song Trust is kind of like a one place. You still have to be registered like a performance rights organization, at least as a writer. But for independent artists that are not signed with a music publishing company, which would be a company that handles kind of all the management of the compositions that a songwriter writes, Song Trust is a company that kind of takes over that role for people that like sign up online and don't have a direct contractual relationship with another company. So Song Trust makes sure that everything is around the world is being collected and then they take a percentage for you know their service in doing that and then pay and then pay you the royalties as well. So like for people that are registered with Song Trust, like if you're an go on ASCAP or BMI to look up a particular song, it'll say whoever is the writer, Joe Kamachi. Kamoshi. Kamoshi, sorry. <laughs> so he's the writer and the publisher would be Care of Song Trust. If somebody wants to use that song for something, they would contact Song Trust and then Song Trust would say like, hey, Joe wants to use your song, different things like that. So they kind of do all the paperwork, the royalty collection. Gotcha. So it's like, a, like an umbrella branch that, that can help with some of the royalty collection and, and with the publishing share and whatnot. Yeah. Awesome. One of, the things, one of the things that you had brought up was one of the biggest mistakes that you see is artists not being upfront and clear with each other in terms of agreements that they're creating, especially during like co-write sessions and just in getting clear agreements upfront and thinking, oh yeah, we'll just figure this out later. And that turning into a lot of issues on the back end where it's like people are like um, trying to decide like who had the actual percentages and then afterwards it can kind of become a big issue. I think that's a really important thing for anyone that's listening right now. It's like, that's one thing. So not just with like 
not just with musicians and co-writing sessions and whatnot, but just like for a lot of business agreements or partnerships, for, for example, there's with Modern Musician, I have a business partner that I've been working with for about a year and a half. And upfront, I think one of the things I'm super, super grateful that we did was we wrote out a contract and just got really, not for like, even the sake of wanting to like have like a legal agreement for each other to like sue each other or anything, but just to like get on the same page and understand exactly how things are working out and to, to figure out the end in mind for like when we do eventually part ways, what does that look like and putting that into place. And it's something that right now with Bonner Musician, he is about a month ago, he told me that he wants to take a step back to go fully into his music and to really to record and release new songs, which is amazing. But right now, gosh, if we hadn't done the upfront work of just putting in writing and clarifying and recording a video of us talking through the agreement, it would be a lot more messy. It would be just like, it would, it would be a much more stressful situation. So I just wanted to speak to what you said about like upfront, ha having the clarity and to, to get one of those agreements and getting on the same page so that later on that doesn't create extra issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a perfect example. And I think you explained it really well, because that's what the purpose of a contract is so that everyone can be on the same page. Because if you didn't have that, and then your partner is saying, I want to take a step back, it's like, okay, well, what do we do now? And what does that look like? And maybe he has a different view of what that looks like than what you do. And so this is, this comes up actually a lot with bands. So one of the agreements I talk about in the book is a band agreement. And so it's like, okay, you guys are in a band together. How are the writing royalties being split for publishing? How are the record royalties being split? Who can use the band name? Who owns the band name? What happens if you want to bring a new member into the band? What happens if somebody wants to leave the band? And, so there are, and there's more issues too, but those are some of the basic ones. And what I tell people, it's like getting married, that you're, you're entering into this relationship with people and you're kind of like you said, with your business partner, laid it all out. What happens if we don't want to be business partners anymore? And People in bands are business partners, actually. And the other thing, when people tell me, well, I feel weird bringing it up, it's for everyone's protection, not just, it's it shouldn't be an adversarial thing. Like I'm coming in with this contract that we have to sign. It's to benefit everyone so that everyone's clear on how the relationship works and what happens if you don't want to be in that relationship. And if the people are going to be really difficult about it up front, then you might want to think twice about being in a business with them, whether it's what you think of as more of an actual business or whether it's a band, because a band, people don't like to think of it as a business really, but it is a business. It's a company, even if it's not legally designated that way. It is what it is. You're putting out music, which is your product. You have to market and promote it and manage the income that comes in from it. And so it has a lot of the same elements and there is that aspect to it that you have to think of it that way, not just the creative part of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's so important to to frame and, and think about it, not necessarily as like a, who gets like a divisive thing, but more just like we want to get on the same page. It's about transparency and about making this a win for everyone, but just having clarity right now before 
things potentially get like messy. Like if there is like a, a breakup, that's not necessarily a good breakup, which happens. It's important to just clarify things so that you understand how to handle things if that does happen. The last uh, point that, that you had brought up in terms of like the, some of the three biggest uh, mistakes or challenges that you see was when lo and behold, Joe Kamoshi finds out that he, he actually has a big opportunity to sign to a major record label or to some other opportunity that you know maybe he reads through and it's like, I don't really understand this. Or he's talking with you know the other party and basically signs an agreement without really fully understanding what the terms are. So it sounds like what we'd recommend is really making sure that you have proper representation for if you are going to sign a deal like that. I guess one, one question for you in terms of of that process do you think it's possible to like to over like complicate or over worry about like like you know obviously like you're like reading through a website like terms and conditions like agree do not agree <laughs> like but then there are like serious like deals negotiations that that you should get third-party help with so when do you think is like the right time for someone to seek that like they, they absolutely should like seek out some third-party help and not just try to handle it themselves Whenever you're presented with an agreement, especially if you don't ha understand everything in that agreement, but really, even if you think you understand what's in the agreement, because I've had people come to me and say, yeah, well, I, last year I signed this deal with company and I read it over and it looked fine. And, and then, but they're telling me things that don't look right or don't sound right. And so I said, let me see this agreement. And then I read it and I'm like, oh, did you know that they're doing this and this? And they're saying, no. And I'm like, yeah, this is why you should have had an attorney review it because I'm trained to look for stuff like that. Because legal, everybody's seen some sort of legal language in documents or whatever. It's like a different language and it's not always easy to understand. And so having somebody trained that knows how to interpret that language and knows what it means and what it means when, you know, paragraph over here is affecting the other paragraph over here and, and can kind of translate that into practical reality of like, okay, this is what it means for you. That's super important. What I was just speaking about is actually a real example that I had a client come to me at one point that had signed something previously, thought it was fine. And it turned out that one income stream was funneling into another income stream to trigger a threshold that then allowed the company to have copyright ownership over that person's work. You couldn't tell that just by like a surface level read. And then I had to inform him that this is what he had signed. So yeah, so these things do happen. Now, you could even go earlier with an attorney. I get people all the time that are like, I really just want to understand more about copyright or am I set up properly to collect my royalties or these are my, this is kind of where I want to go and my setup right to do that. Or I just have questions because I want to understand these concepts better. I do appointments like that all the time to explain these things to people and help them understand it in the context of their own career. It's never really too early, but I would say definitely if you're presented with a contract to sign, or if you need a contract for somebody that you're working with are all good, good times to, to do that. Mm, awesome. Cool. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it's not really ever a risk of like being, of doing it too early, right? Like you, it's always good to seek out information. If you can prevent 
something from like bad from happening, it's almost always going to be a lot cheaper and easier to do it than to like try to fix it after it's you're kind of in the middle of it. But absolutely where you you need to find representation is if you're signing any sort of deal or agreement then it's especially important to to get to get third party help even if you might think that you understand the deal there's sometimes there's language or these things that are kind of misleading or difficult to, to fully understand so i guess one thing i would be kind of curious about is like what are some of the what are some of those those things that people like examples that that have people have overlooked in your experience or things that are like especially important to consider like when it comes to negotiating a deal let's say that someone let's say someone that's listening to this is like seriously considering uh, signing a deal with a record label, whether it's like a major record label or like a smaller record label, what are some of the big decisions that they should be looking at and considering on these deal points? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just from a big picture, be what is that label going to do for you? Are you going to be just like another name on the roster and the label is not really going to do anything for you more than what you're doing for yourself, which I've had that happen to clients that the label ended up not doing really more for them. They really wanted to sign with the label, but the label really wasn't doing more for them that they could do for themselves. Or does the label, is the label really going to be a benefit um, to you? So that's a big picture thing, I think, to consider. And do they really get you and understand you and are excited about your music and, and that kind of stuff. But from a deal perspective, one thing to consider is the advance that you're getting because an advance is an advance payment of royalties that the record label has to make back before they pay you royalties. So is it going to be like a really high advance that you're basically in debt to the label for, which, I mean, if they drop you, you usually don't have to pay it back. But at the same time, it's like, are you going to not see royalties for the next 15 years (laughs) because you're just, you got this advance or are the record recording costs going to be like super high? And we can tell stories of back in the day where it's private jets and a drug budget in the studio. They don't say that. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) nobody get mad at me because I said that, but. Moshi, another angry male from Joe. No, but like, obviously they're not going to like put that as a line item, but oh, we need to like fly in this orchestra from wherever. And these recording costs would be like so big that the band would never recoup that money. And so then they wouldn't see royalties, that kind of thing where you have to weigh like, what are the upfront costs versus whether you actually want to be receiving royalties or you're fine with just getting this upfront payment, or if it's an all in payment, which means that whatever's in excess of the recording cost is like kind of goes in your pocket for living expenses or whatever, are you spending so much on the recording that you're not going to have anything left over? But that's a little bit later because you're not getting the advance till you sign the deal. But these are kind of things to consider when you're thinking about what the advance amount is that's being offered to you. Another thing is the royalties. So record labels are notorious for taking a lot of deductions on what money is going towards those royalties. If a dollar comes in, but then there's 67 cents of deduction, and then you're getting 18% of like what's left over. <laughs> like that's not really the same as 18% on, a, on the dollar that you thought you were getting. And that's one of the 
sometimes a little bit less now, but it's the royalties and the deductions are one of the most heavily negotiated parts of a recording agreement because traditionally, like I said, record labels take a lot of deductions on things that aren't necessarily always thinks it should be there. There are other considerations like, again, it's like what's being spent on marketing or promotion or videos, or are you getting tour support? The last 10, 15 years have been, there was a big period of 360 deals where labels were um, going into not just records, but all these other areas of publishing and merchandise and touring and sponsorships and all these things. And depending on the deal, it would vary as far as whether the label was actually doing these things for you or if they were just participating in the income. Looking at that, well, are you just in this label or with this label for records or are they participating in these other areas and how does that impact your income and also how long you're in this deal for? Term is a big, is a big consideration because if you're in a, you know, deal that's going to be like seven years or something you hopefully are going to be happy in those in that time and it's you're not going to be stuck in this deal for years that was kind of stalling your career because the labels and you don't have a good relationship anymore so it's kind of thinking about the short term and the long term at the same time. So I always look at when I'm doing a deal, I'm not only looking at what the actual contract says, but I'm looking at how this affects my client long term and does this align with my client's goals and things like that. Because you sign something now, you think it's, oh, it's not that big of a deal that I gave up ownership of this thing or that, that it's a seven-year deal or whatever. And then later that can become a big issue. That's so good. And that, what that reminds me of is, I think this is like a really good philosophy for for anything, like for any sort of partnership or collaboration or deal or something. Like if you're about to make a major decision is the idea of dating before you get married. And yeah, I also think it takes a lot of the pressure off of when you're like, if you're going to try out something, something new, just knowing like that you're going to date before you get married, like, and kind of structuring that so that you have a trial period, you have a trial period to basically know like how this is going to work because you know, something like a major, like a seven year deal is like getting married. And if you've never, if you haven't really been working with this record label for so long, how do you know if you guys are compatible and like, you're really going to get along, right? So maybe it'd be oh. possible to like a shorter one leading into a longer one? Well, so sometimes we just try and do a shorter one. And if the parties still want to work together, then they can do another deal after. But sometimes you just, you got to go into the marriage, the seven-year marriage or whatever it is. And maybe we're able to build some things into the contract. If this happens, then you can get out of the contract. Or if the label doesn't release the album, then we can you can get out of the contract or there's kind of different parameters that we work with, but sometimes you got to enter into it on faith and hope it goes well and hopefully have some things built in to be able to get out if things get bad. But yeah, you can't always account for every single thing that might happen. Right. 
Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, sometimes it can be tricky. Like sometimes you do have to, to get married. Um, like, but if you do that, you can still do it in a safe way where you have some things built in. So if like you do part ways that you can do that in, in a reasonable way and to, to avoid risk as much as possible. A lot of it really depends on your bargaining power too. If you're a brand new artist signing with the major label, you're having a good team can definitely help with that and giving you that extra leverage that you need. But unfortunately, like sometimes when you're just starting out, you're not going to get the best deal because you're not superstar yet. And then when you're a superstar, you can get the best deal. But at least what my job is to make the contract as good as I can make it for my client. But that's also sometimes relative to what that company will allow for someone and a big company is going to have a lot more power than than an, an artist just signing their first deal but you can still work within the parameters of that deal make it as good as you can for someone that you know that's signing their first deal so it's kind of all relative but you do the best you can in the situation that you know that you're in and then hopefully everything goes well and then the next deal is better and the next deal is better and the next deal is better and sometimes you get a good deal and a lot of times you get a good deal I don't want to make it sound like everybody that's like signing their first deal is going to be bad but when I certainly make them the best that they can be but just as is the nature of it the more successful you are the more opportunities are available and better deals are available to you to the point where you're like Taylor Swift and you get to own all your masters in your new deal and that kind of stuff. That makes a lot of sense. And so to, to recap, it sounds like what you're saying is just that like the nature of deals and negotiation is with leverage, the more that you have to offer, then the better deal that, that you can get. And so if you're just starting out and you don't, you haven't built up a successful business or have an audience and you're going, you're trying to negotiate a deal, you don't really have a lot of leverage. And so you might not be able to negotiate as good of a deal as if you did, if you've already built up a lot of, a lot of buzz and a lot of like a successful business on your own first. Exactly. (laughs) You summed it all up. I do. I'm like a perpetual summer upper. I know. Um, I'm what, like, oh, dude, I'm just going to bring you with me. Awesome. So Aaron, this has been, it's been a lot of fun. We've gone places with this. We've, I think we've taken a topic that for some people can be like really challenging and, and complicated. And we've infused some life and fun into it, which I think is like in essence, what you do with a lot of what you like your book, everything is you take these concepts that can be difficult to grasp. And it sounds like you like you really streamline them. So thank you so much for taking the time and don't just ignore any email to get from Joe. If there's anyone listening to this right now named Joe Komoshi, please do me a favor and reach out because I, I want to know. <laughs> I want to know you and I want to have that moment. But Aaron, th- thank you again. This, is, this has been really awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, sorry, I forgot the last thing. This is important. Is for anyone who's listening to this uh, right now and is interested in learning more from you, or, or or checking out your book, or your website, or even reach out reach out to you personally. What would be the best place for them to reach out? Mm-hmm. So my website is themusicindustrylawyer.com. And there's also a contact page on that website. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. I have another website called indieartistresource.com where I have contract templates for the most needed contracts by, that independent musicians need and also a bunch of educational resources on there. Both of them link to the book as well. Again, it's called Don't Get Screwed, How to Protect Yourself as an Independent Musician. It's available on Amazon. 
and I'm on social media and all that stuff. All those links are on the websites as well. So the musicindustrylawyer.com, indieartistresource.com, and then the books at Amazon. All right. Fantastic. And, and we'll also put all the links for, for all this into the show notes as well to make it as easy as possible. Awesome. Cool. All right, Aaron, thank you again so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's Michael here. I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, then that'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take their music careers to the next level. The time to be a modern musician is now, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.